edition of big digital energy today given what's going on this uh weekend we figured we needed the best expert we could get and so we're delighted to have matt Orr join us and among other things i was reading your bio it's very impressive russian literature and culture from georgetown uh george washington university a master's degree in all things Russia, Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe, and Eurasia from Texas, and now you're with Rain, and I've never run across Rain. So Matt, thanks for joining us. But tell me real quick who Rain is. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think for a lot of uh, listeners, particularly Texans, they're they're probably more familiar with a company called Stratfor. Um, so Stratfor is our, our previous brand name for our geopolitical intelligence product. Uh, Rain Rain's a bigger company. We basically well, Rain stands for Risk Assistance Network and Exchange, and we help uh, companies deal with all sorts of risk. Uh, the ma- the main area I deal with is is geopolitical risk, uh, political risk, reputational risks um, related to the Eurasia region. So I am I'm the Eurasia analyst uh, at Rain, uh, where I cover all of those issues um, uh, in, in great detail. And so we I write for. Our corporate clients, but also write for our our, our our what we call our consumer digital publication, uh, which is still under the the Stratfor brand name at Stratfor.com. But you can read all of our analysis by going by going through uh, 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 RainNetwork.com. So Matt, you know we've we've talked a lot about energy and the macroeconomic headwinds and you know those aspects of the sector for seemingly months now and i think russia ukraine has taken a bit of a back seat yeah and maybe has fallen off the front burner or moved off the front burner off the radar of a lot of those in the energy space a lot of the players in the energy market in fact dan jorgen today commented on the sidelines of the asia energy conference in malaysia that the energy markets are about economics not about geopolitics right now. And I think this weekend was a reminder of that. Can you, can you just kind of level set us on yeah. Russia, Ukraine, and then you know, how did we get here uh, yeah. to the events of this past weekend? Yeah. So, I mean, look, where, where we are in the Russia, Ukraine war is it's it, the Ukrainians are in the middle of their counteroffensive. It really hasn't gone as well as they had hoped. It's gone worse than I think they expected at least the start. Um, and so it, it's a it's a time of great uncertainty. Where on the one hand, the Ukrainians are ha, have this upper hand; they are attacking, they're gaining ground. Um, but on the other hand, it's very difficult for them to uh, really make a major breakthrough and, and really kind of upend the the trajectory of the war. Um, and both sides are really grinding themselves down. Meanwhile, Russia is also preparing itself for this possibility of a long protracted. War, particularly if the Ukrainians keep getting support from the West and they can continue to, to attack Russia, Russia needs needed to do all kinds of things to better prepare itself for a long term war, and so that's really what this whole the, the stimulus for this whole issue with the the Wagner Group, um, where, where it comes from, where basically the Russians had used this this guy this guy's mercenary group uh, as their one essentially their main offensive force uh, in the in the last few few months. Uh, and it's it, it has it has a long history that we don't necessarily get it need to get into, 
but they really put a lot on the line and 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 this the head of it all this guy named Prigozhin uh put a lot of his resources into this and they took territory um and he 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 started using that to kind of increase his political uh, uh weight within Russia and he and in a society where uh the, the the official version of events are are lying to you all the time right there's not even really official figures on uh, how many how many Russians are 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 dying in this war all one has to do is really just kind of start saying the truth to all of a sudden start becoming popular and start get, getting a lot more influence. And so uh, because this guy's patriotic uh, bona fides were, were, were very clear, he, he started telling the truth about how our military leaders um, you know, are, are incompetent. The, the, the general in charge of the war and the defense minister have you know, m- messed up the special military operation. Um, and they're lying to us, and it's 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 not the trajectory of the war is is not good unless we remove these people. Um, of course, Prigozhin is a, is a gangster. He's a gangster by his nature. Uh, a lot of the kind of the the body politic in Russia comes down to this uh, essentially this kind of gangster mor- morality, where if you if you mess with somebody, then the way to respond is to is to punch him in the mouth, and that's kind of what this started escalating to and so the, the the these two guys the russian defense minister and the 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 chief of the army basically said well if if prigozhin's going to attack us then we're going to attack him back and the way to attack prigozhin back was to make him sign an order where all of the the forces in his private military company would have to essentially sign contracts that make them subservient to the russian army they hated that because, again, they think these people are incompetent and that they screwed the pooch on the invasion of Ukraine. So now why would they sign themselves over to people that they think are incompetent? And so faced with the situation where Prigozhin felt like he would, I mean, he, his influence was being unf- unfairly and incorrectly forced into, these hands, into the hands of these people that Putin appointed, but that he, he didn't really like or agree with, he said that, look, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, you know, show that I'm right in this situation. And again, he's, he kept telling the truth. He really crossed a bunch of the rhetorical red lines where he started talking about how uh, uh, the, the Ukrainians wanted to come to an agreement with us, but it was our refusal to negotiate that really, you know, is the reason the war happened. It's the reason the war is continuing. That was, of course, a big no-no because that's exactly the opposite of what the Russians say, which is that it's the Ukrainians' refusal to negotiate, et cetera. Um, and so basically he, he basically said, I have to respond in the only way that I can, which is to, you know, uh, take my, take my forces into Russia and, and, and stage, uh, this armed rebellion. Uh, I call it an armed rebellion because it was not, it was not a coup. He never claimed that he was trying to remove Putin. Um, it was not really directed at Putin. It was really, I think the way to think about it is using military means to force Putin to make it to, to politically intervene to make a different decision with regards to the leaders of, of the war. And so what Prigozhin really wanted is for Putin to fire these guys. Um, it doesn't look like he succeeded that. It looks like he risked a lot and he's going to lose a lot and his influence is going to fall. But it's a, it's a sign of the kind of, um, uh, you know, the, the, the weakness of, of, of Putin's regime and the fact that, you know, you can start marching an army around on Russian territory a private army that's not following orders and you know it can and the authorities have no response to you moreover once you do this the the authorities don't crack down on you with an iron fist they actually 
start saying really nice things about your fighters and want to come to a compromise with you, right? Which sets a horrible precedent for 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 Putin. So, there, I mean, there's at this point there's still more questions than answers, but I think that that's kind of a, a general primer on, on on what we saw. I, I yeah, because it's real. Uh, it's really interesting because if you think about it, the Wagner Group seemed to advance further than Napoleon or Hitler even advanced, and so when you think through that it feels like there must have been at least some sort of cooperation by the populace, the military of Russia. But then to your point, he is now in Belarus in exile. Is there anything to the whole theory or the conspiracy theory maybe that Putin was in on this and this was staged or am I kind of, uh, am I kind of wandering off the reservation? Yeah. I mean, in theory, there could have been something to it where Putin might have had an agreement with Prigozhin to do this, to then use that as grounds to, to make these personnel changes. Um, but I, 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 don't, I don't really believe that at all. I, I think that it's extremely, extremely unlikely. Um, there, there's not really it, – it, this has been so uh, embarrassing, I think, to Putin on, on, on the international stage and then even domestically it's so – um, uh, a potentially destabilizing and set such poor precedents that I, I really don't believe uh, Putin wanted wanted this at all. I don't think he. I think I think the better explanation for kind of your surprise about how this went is just that the Kremlin didn't think that this would happen. They didn't think that Prigozhin would actually ex- escalate to this point um, and, and do this, and so they were really caught off guard when he did. Um, I, I think that's the more likely explanation. But yeah, to your point about where they marched. Um, it, it does, it does kind of show ridiculous, this idea that the Russians are saying, oh, if the Ukrainians attack Russian territory, then we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Well, here's a guy marching, marching around his, you know, tens of thousands of man army around Russia without much consequences. So it really kind of makes that idea a bit ridiculous. I found one of the more interesting, if not eccentric things that I picked up in the news flows, trying to figure out the background of Prigozhin is that. I believe he spent some time as a hot dog caterer and as and as Putin's chef, which makes it, you know, seem even more, I don't know, absurd yeah. that, you know, somebody's getting the upper hand on, on Putin. I guess somebody that he trusted for a, a large part of his his military political career. And so now he's been now he's been exiled to Belarus. I, I was going to ask, what what is that? dynamic or what does that dimension mean? Uh, my, my understanding and not knowing a lot about uh, the various former Soviet states and, and their alignment or misalignment with Putin, my understanding is that Belarus is pretty lockstep aligned. And what does that, you know, what does that yeah. ultimately mean yeah. for, for the exile? And then I guess for the Wagner group. Yeah. Great question. I think that the whole Belarus angle and the, the relationship to Belarus to this situation is one of the strangest and still kind of murkiest parts of the whole thing um that right we have this idea that that lukashenko the belarusian dictator helped broker this deal somehow the reason why that would be is that putin can't putin is the one who has to negotiate with prigozhin but putin can't negotiate with prigozhin because that would set a precedent where if you cause problems in russia that wins you a negotiation with putin which is a poor precedent so there's a, a reason why they would want to kind of outsource this to Lukashenko. And he, Belarus is a country that's entirely dependent on Russia. 
Lukashenko's own regime would be collapsing economically if it did not get the subsidies, including energy subsidies, um, uh, oil and gas bought way below market prices that it gets from Russia, things like that. Um, and so he, there's a dependency relationship. And so there, there's, this, there's this agreement that's spoken where these guys will be allowed to go to Belarus and kind of hang out there. Um, but the thing is, is that the, the Russians have broken agreements before. Um, and it's really kind of difficult for me to see all these Wagner guys hanging out in Belarus for a long, like for a long time and that being the new status quo. So it, it's, 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 it's still really hard to tell. I think that what Putin's going to say tonight is going to actually help specifically with regards to this situation, get a little bit more clarity. So what is Putin going to say tonight? I, uh, I just saw a new, we're recording this Monday afternoon, call it two fifteen. Central time. I just saw a text come by that Putin's about to address the the country. Any sort of guesses in terms of what he's going to say? Yeah, I think I think he's going to talk about how this this order again that Shaigu made about how all the mercenary groups, all the private volunteer organizations that are fighting in Ukraine, not directly under the the control of the Ministry of Defense, that all of those organizations need to be brought under more firmly under the army's control so that they have unity of command. I think that's the big change he's going to he's going to make and that's how and then he's also going to say things about he's going to try to frame everything in a very positive light. He's going to say we diffused a difficult situation uh very effectively at a time when you know the west was saying we were on the verge of a civil war, etc. Um so I, I think it's it's his main focus gonna is gonna be on that change and then on kind of acting like things are still going okay. It would be a but there is, I should recognize there is the possibility that he finally does a much bigger change. Um does something like uh, does a cabinet shakeup or fires these these generals, uh the defense minister. So that that possibility also can't can't be excluded. Let's let's point bring it inside the energy arena and talk about Russia's changing, I guess, profile or status within OPEC plus and, and what, you know, what this, this chaos or turmoil, uh, means, you know, we, we've had, I think a frustrated primary OPEC, principally Saudi Arabia, uh, taking in another unilateral million barrels a day cut, uh, Russia and the other sanctioned nations, namely Iran and Venezuela recently have outperformed on production. So now we're expecting, another 850,000 barrels a day out of those three. And, and so the unity among OPEC 10 in terms of where we are in a fairly precarious inventory situation, concerns about demand, et cetera. What, you know, what's kind of next for that relationship yeah. uh, given what's happened? Yeah. I mean, it, it's a great question. I think on the one hand, political instability and chaos creates fear in, in Russia and when there's fear in Russia, they start thinking even more about the near term. And when the Russians start thinking about the near term, their economics are such that they think that increasing production is is more likely to give them crucial revenue that they need now rather than some calculation about revenue that they may want or get years from now. Uh, and so, and and that's that's kind of that's that's kind of what we've seen more more recently, where the Russians are trying to keep their despite all these factors that would make it harder for them to keep production up. They're, they're trying to, to, to keep their production up as much as they can. Um, and o- OPEC, OPEC that is part of the deal. The Saudis, are, are it seems to me, are obliged to 
kind of let them go along with this. We saw that the 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 the, the latest deal actually allowed them to revise up their their base uh, pr- production amount of about a hundred hundred million barrels a day to kind of start from a a higher point. Um, or hundred thousand, yeah, hundred thousand barrels a day. So they, they there's they've been compromising in the direction of the Russians, and so that that's kind of not that's a sign that we're going to see this increase. On the other hand, the Russians being able to kind of have a a get the get a free hand or have or have this idea in their head that they can uh, do what they want with production is is potentially dangerous because the last thing that the Russians need right now is a price war similar to what we what we saw last decade. With the Saudis right now, which would send oil global oil prices way down, which would be absolutely catastrophic to the Russian economy. So there's this really difficult balancing situation that the Russians have to play. Where on the one hand, they're they got to keep their own production as high as possible to maximize near-term revenue, because that's what political instability makes them worry about. But on the other hand, they they can't actually get it to the point of triggering some new breakdown of the agreement. So thinking through, let's call it boots on the ground workers in the Russian oil field, does any of this weekend cause any sort of change in behavior of, hey, I'm not going to go to work today. I'm not going to work as hard. I don't respect Putin. I'm going to stay at home. Maybe I'm going to quote unquote strike. And maybe Moscow doesn't have the ability to affect its oil production because of its control of the populace, or is that just kind of wishful thinking potentially on my part? No, no, I, I don't think that we're going to get at anything like that. Um, it, it, Russia doesn't work like a lot of countries um, politically in that way. When when things when things get worse, people become even less likely to protest just because they become even more dependent on what little salary they have to you know to to survive in a lot of ways to keep the, the, to keep food on the table to keep the lights on etc uh, I I don't I don't think that we're gonna see any any broader kind of political instability um, of that kind of related to disgruntlement um, but again if, if if things would change a lot if the Ukraine war started going much Worse for the Russians and the Ukrainians were were able to get take back more of their territory. If the Ukrainians just the Ukrainians don't need to take back all all of their territory, they don't even they don't need to take back Crimea. They don't need to take back Donbas. But if the Ukrainians even just took back this land bridge between Donbas and Crimea, basically the area along the, the the Dnieper River, that would have huge political effects inside Russia, where people would not protest over. Uh, you know, over over their standard of living, but they would protest over the fact that Putin brought them into this war that's been an utter disaster and a failure, and, and didn't allow them to take the one strategic prize from the whole invasion. So, I, I think in terms of, of of what you're getting at, I think it's it's really the situation on the battlefield that's more likely to affect that. Are there and one other kind of follow up question when they talk about mob bosses, and I think. That's probably a good analogy for Putin. You mentioned it earlier. They talk about how over their reign of terror, at some point they isolate themselves so much that they generally have weak yes men around them. And that usually what leads to their topple is they don't have a strong enough infrastructure to defend them. Is this maybe a sign that Putin's at this point or is this an isolated event? 
No, I mean, I, on the one hand, it's, it's both on the one hand, it's an isolated event, but on the, because just because this, this was the only individual who had a clear reason to really take his grievances to this level. On the other hand, Putin does still remain surrounded by yes, yes men. Um, it's just that the, those, and that's a problem because Putin does have problems where he gets incorrect information. Um, but I think that this is a really big wake up call to him that he needs to make, you know, go around a lot of his previous loyalists and really make sure that he has an accurate picture of what's taking place on the battlefield, on the home front, in the economy. Um, and, and, and so I, maybe, maybe we could start to see the, the, a slight change where, Putin is actually taking another look at a lot of the yes men in, in his inner circle. Um, but right now he's been so far, he's been so reluctant to do that because he's really worried about these yes men around him uh, actually tur- turning on him. Uh, the, the fear is that if he starts m- turning them into scapegoats again, then they will see Putin not as their protector, but as, as the threat to them. Uh, and unlike Prigozhin, who did, never had an ability to assume power in Russia or anything like that, you know, the, the defense minister and the head of the security services and, and people in those spheres, those are actually people that could attempt to, to, to remove Putin if they, if they no longer felt that Putin was able to keep up with the Russian national interest. So let's, let's zoom back out a little bit, yeah. um, kind of on the external constituents or, or relationships. Yeah. Any, any implications, you know, we've, we've been watching China very closely. We've been seeing the rhetoric coming out of Blinken's recent meeting with Xi, um, kind of the changing balances within BRICS. What, what if any, implications does this have yeah. uh, in, in terms of Russia's place in that, in that larger uh, global alliance? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that this shows everything that we've seen in these recent days shows just how important these relationships are with the, the non-West. So that that of, that of course incru- includes the the BRIC nations, um, but it also includes other other players, right? So Putin called several foreign leaders uh, in the in the most recent days. He he actually spoke with the Turkish president Erdogan on multiple occasions, um, and then he spoke with a whole host of of regional re- leaders in his backyard. Um, right, you have what's going on with with the Saudis and their their cooperation on on oil and and other things, and the Saudis have actually been. Uh, uh, they've played a role in, in negotiating prisoner transfers and have talked about their, their close, their close relations with Russia and all of these relationships. These, these are the ones that the Russians, it's absolutely crucial for them to preserve. Um, and if, so if you look at the, the relationship with, with China, that's another one that's of course, absolutely in the same belt. Notably, Putin didn't speak with the Chinese leader when all of this uh, uh, erup- erupted. There's a couple couple reasons for that. The Chinese don't don't ha- really have a, a a tradition of of kind of meeting or intervening to speak with foreign leaders during major political events like this. But the Chinese, this is the kind of thing that just absolutely scares the Chinese uh, to to death because they are worried about political instability in Russia. And if China were to somehow lose its only powerful geopolitical true like a- ally. Um, then that would that would be really devastating for China and the entire BRICS blocks as kind of this this global counterweight um, to, to 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 the West. And so I think that the the recent days show that Putin is absolutely just going to double down on all of his, the importance of all his all of his relationships 
uh, with with non-Western countries. If we come to us, to the West, I think Biden came out today and and discussed that we were in no way, shape or involved in this uh, potential I call it a potential coup, but I think you had a better way of uh, of phrasing it. Armed, um, armed uprising, yeah. Armed uprising, I like that. That that's better. But that we were in no way, shape, or form involved in it. Is there a chance we were in some way, shape, or form involved in this in any way? Yeah. I I, I don't I don't think so. Um, although there was some really good good reporting uh, in the Washington Post and some other uh, major Western outlets about how the West the the Western intelligence actually caught up on what Prigozhin was planning. Um, uh, they 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 saw how frustrated he and his inner circle were. Prigozhin's were about uh, this this Ministry of Defense order, uh, and so they they started plotting this. And I think that the West saw this and they said, "We're gonna we're gonna keep our mouths shuts about this and, and kind of let this guy go through with this whole thing." There was also concerns. There was all kinds of contingency planning they had to do. There was also talk about how they had to make sure that there was no possibility this guy could actually get access to Russia's nuclear weapons arsenal. With his forces, things like that. Um, but so there's all kinds of concerns and contingency planning that had to be done. But in general, the West, I think, was was eager to to kind of say, "How? Oh, I mean, this is this is not our guy. This is this is a guy who's. I mean, he he he's he's more of an uh, ultra. He frames himself as more of an arch nationalist, uh, anti-Western per, put, person than even Putin himself does. So he's he's not somebody who's particularly <laughs> sympathetic to us. Although he did start teasing some kind of pro-Western rhetoric. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think the West played a hand in this, but they were certainly happy to, to, to see this took place because it, it's a sign of all the, 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 the tensions within Russia that, that have always existed. They've been bubbling. And so it was definitely a relief to see them actually come out. And, and Matt, there's always a point in the Big Digital Energy podcast where Mark rolls his eyes at me so it is wholly appropriate to roll your eyes at me. I'm going to get on my soapbox a little bit. <laughs> I've always believed in foreign policy that when the job application for leader of a of a of a nation is a barroom brawl, rarely, if ever, will the replacement be better than the person he bought he beat in a fight. And we've deceived ourselves in the United States because we, in effect, had a barroom brawl with the British. We got rid of them. And then we had this wild, you know, group of characters that actually wrote a constitution, committed to a legitimate form of government. And we somehow think that others will actually do that because we did that and they just don't. And so as bad as Putin is, and I'm not a fan of Putin. I really worry about who's next because, like I said, the job the job interview process on that is not pretty. Yeah, and I'll uh, I'll not roll my eyes at this one, Chuck, because I agree with you. And it was interesting to see the various actors on the global stage, you know, start you know placing their bets, so to speak. Um, I, I think of one in particular. I saw a blurb on Mikhail Kordakovsky, former. Uh, an exiled chairman and CEO of Yukos who spent, I don't know how many years in a Siberian gulag, but it was a long time. Actually, sidebar, years ago when I was at Simmons, I had had a breakfast with him 
at the JW Marriott on Westheimer, and it was it was a very interesting and if not tense affair. But uh, at any rate, I. I think when we get into these, uh, you know, picking horses situations, we've seen it in other cases like Libya, uh, Syria, et cetera. It's, it's really, you know, the devil, you know, versus the one you don't potentially. Right. So I don't know how you think about that. There there seemed to be uh, chomping at the bit to really, to really roll this forward and and hope for an outcome that would replace Putin. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one that I I think that exactly what you guys are getting at is one of the things that made this whole incident so fascinating, which is that on the one hand, this Prigozhin guy had, had, had distinguished himself by being an escalation advocate, trying to be even more anti-Western and patriotic than Putin himself. And he was really catering for that kind of far right ultranationalist base in Russia. But then as the, as this started ticking down in the last month, in, specifically in order to widen his base of support, he started, again, as I mentioned at the very beginning of our podcast, he started teasing these more pro-Western narratives, te- really starting to try to actually attract the liberal the, the liberal opposition, the traditional opposition populace um, to, to his support. And that had an effect. And exactly the person that you mentioned was, was one of the major uh, represent representatives, of course, abroad of this, this, this kind of uh, pro, this, this Russian, a uh, uh, liberal movement, if you want to call it that, Mikhail Khodorkovsky, and he he came out directly and said, like, hey, you know, prepare prepare yourselves. Um, you know, opposition forces in Russia may need to su- may may need to support this Prigozhin guy. I know he's a gangster. I know he doesn't share you know our our values, but you know, it, we we can't we can't pick we can't pick who's going to take up arms against Putin. We can only make sure that our our views and voices are, are are also part of these processes and discussions and he even called for russians to to arm themselves and potentially prepare to support support prigozhin um but right as you said that yeah that's kind of the problem here which is that um we, we for at rain we have one of our most robust analytic products and we we look at who could actually uh it's called a, a key forecast question and one of the things we look at is who could actually replace Putin, uh, and at least the way that I have the percentages worked out now, I mean, I think it's a it's a coin toss in terms of uh, whether you get a, a a replacement for Putin who's seeking de-escalation, or whether you're getting a replacement who's seeking more escalation. And I think that in the case of Prigozhin, it's very clear that why he wanted to expand his base, his his base, his and get more supporters, he he would definitely try to escalate the the, the war to 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 as part of his policy. What escalate the war means is transition more Russian in- civilian industries to a wartime footing, conduct more mandatory mobilization measures where they conscript, force forcibly conscript people into the army, etc. Um, so yeah, and that's not necessarily stuff that would be particularly good um, for for the West and would just lead to an even more uh, an even hotter war in Ukraine. And one of Prigozhin's programs, as I understand it, was offering freedom to criminals to conscript them into yeah. the to the Wagner forces and I think they're they refer to themselves maybe somewhat cynically as musicians. Um, yes, yes, because the group is actually named after the 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 composer right. Richard Wagner and it's kind of this Nazi aesthetic for lack yeah, for a, exactly. for lack of a better I mean that's that's objectively true and so it's always another it's another strange wrinkle when the Russians start uh calling the Ukrainian Nazis but then the most prominent of this this private military organization is named after the chief, the chief composer of Nazi Germany. So 
let's talk about oil in Russia for uh, just a minute. You know, the, the, the Western evacuation that started with the outbreak of the invasion, you know, I, I, I think stating the obvious, the, the, the picture of what's going on with the Russian production base and supply complex has gotten a lot more opaque. Yep. What, what's your sense in terms of the resilience of the industry and, and being able yeah. to maintain that, you know, they're not, they're not a trivial player in terms of what yeah. they contribute to global production. So what, what, you know, how long can they keep it going and filling these gaps that lesser OPEC and take, taking market share, which I believe is what happened in this case, it was a bit of a horse trade to yeah. allow them to maybe push a little harder on their own production because the second tier OPEC was long underproducing quota. Yep. Yep. And, yep. and so um, what, what's your sense of, of the health of the industry, yeah. if you will? Yeah. I mean, I, I think your assessment there on that part is exactly right. And yeah, it's it's tough to say. Uh, on the one hand, you have these some Western services industries, some businesses there that are continuing to, to operate in Russia. That really, you, you think of like the SLBs and companies like that, that really, that really, that's a huge, huge help for them to kind of continue putting these band-aids on production and and keep production even where it is now. Um, I think that if you ask people a year ago where Russian production would be, it would probably be um, lower than than it is today, um, about five hundred thousand barrels a day lower than it even is now. So they've they've been they've been doing a decent job of keeping production up. In terms of you know how how long they can continue to continue to do that, it's 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 tough. On the one hand, there's some signs that the Russians are trying to they're doing some things that are going to hurt their production even more. Um, one of the stories that I covered recently is that the, Ru- the Russians also have their budget deficit. And one of the things that they're looking at is actually taking away tax benefits that made super old Russian wells, um, allowed them to keep being profitable. And so it would make those, those wells, uh, uh, to take away the tax benefits for those wells and make continued, their continued use more expensive. That, that would hurt production, but it's something that the Russians want to help to reduce the budget deficit. Um, so there, there's there's kind of tendencies like that. On the other hand, the Russians are are kind of they've gone they've weathered a lot of the storm already, and now they 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 have a better sense of what what technology they need, what expertise they need to really to to actually keep a lot of this production up. Um, and and considering that they've done a decent job in the past, presumably that they can keep, can keep doing that. I think that the, the the situation the situation with the with the budget um, is is definitely one to watch in this case. If the Russian budget deficit starts going you know spiraling out of control, that's that's a that's a that's going to be a huge problem. Uh, and so that that would that would basically show that they have to do even more to ex- get more money from the industry, and that'll make the industry less profitable. And then ultimately they'll have to produce they'll have to produce less in the long run. So. I mean, it, short short run. Um, you know, I think they can keep it up. Um, longer term, it, I think a lot just depends on their macroeconomic situation. And I, I'll be the first to admit, gosh, maybe for the last ten years, I have underestimated the Russian oil business the whole time. I have always missed on that front. Yeah. Seems like every six months, I said because this happens, they're going to produce less, and they always, they always seem to produce more. So uh, I yeah. do the opposite of what I say when it comes to to the Russian oil business. 
Yeah, and it wasn't it wasn't just you. I mean, I, that's I think that's that's just been a, a the yeah the majority of industry people have done that. I think in in recent years, and so I think that this is just yet another case where you should be a little bit skeptical of this idea that Russian production is just going to keep tailing off and tailing off. On the, oh, the other huge element to this that I, we didn't even mention is the 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 state of the price caps. So I remember back all the way when these the first the crude price cap and then the refined product price caps when that that whole discussion first first started um my initial thought was i mean these these absolutely will be enacted and the simple reason is that because oil and gas revenues are such a huge portion of the russian budget that it, the, 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 if the question is how do we reduce putin's leverage or get putin to lay off the ukraine war well then that's really the only correct answer because if if, if it's no longer if he no longer has the revenue to 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 keep his economy um, in a in a somewhat you know workable state, then that's when he has to actually consider negotiations, and so and then all that bore out. And now we have these these price caps. Uh, a really interesting thing we'll, to to think about will be: that does the West does the West ever sense Russia's weakness and then try to do more to lower the price caps? Um, there was also a lot of talk about how damaging these price caps could have been. If they had been attempted at, at an even lower stage and somehow enacted earlier, um, I think that unfortunately the boat has really kind of sailed on that. But who knows? If a future point, if we see another incident similar to this one with Prigozhin, I think the next, the we it can't be the same event because now these private military groups are going to be declined. But if we saw, for example, a general who's now in the the regular Russian army say Prigozhin's arguments were all correct. And I'm my troops agree with me, and we're actually going to, um, you know, march on Moscow. Uh, that would be a time where the Russian system would look, look look really weak, and you could see a push in the West to say this is the time to really put the nut squeezers on on the Russians and really really lower these both the the refined product and the crude cap earlier, or even even lower. So, something closer to a real coup. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Now, how if, how effective truly can caps be and i've always held the the premise that a barrel of oil is a barrel of oil you're just changing what direction uh cargo ships are headed which way the tankers go we'll route stuff through india whatever we will be kind of building on your your thoughts there give us an assessment of how uh, effective the caps were just outside of price effective yeah. in terms of compliance and how does that play going forward potentially yeah i mean i i guess when I, so when i think about the the caps the, the the thing i'm really interested about is um you know compliance is a whole other thing and there's some issues there but for me the question was are they reducing russia's oil revenues and the answer to that was yes so um in that sense that they 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 were working towards their like fundamental policy objective um right yeah in terms of yeah in terms of compliance in the long term exactly that's an that's another reason where their 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 importance is just is is probably going to dissipate over time not increase so it's almost like you should you should have used them more decisively or effectively rather than just kind of institute them at this low level and then let them trail off because one of the big problems is that there was a huge bottleneck for rushed for shipping to get the crude and to get everything to market um, now, presumably the Russians are, have had more time to redirect these these shipments, uh, and they'll and they'll have even more time to continue doing so um, 
and really establish a, a, a long-term relationship with with its alternative buyers, namely India, China, um, some some other Asian Asian countries. Uh, and so, right in in that in that sense, um, you know, the, there's going to it's 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 going to be it's going to be tough, and we haven't really seen um, the 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 West gets gets super uh, intense on really trying to uh, stop those and get India and China to comply. And so in, in that environment, um, yeah, there, the, the, this whole question about the, 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 the need for them is also going to continue. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shift gears pretty hard here. But since we have you, uh, I think it would be remiss if we didn't bring up Nord Stream. Yeah. We, we spent a fair bit of time back when it was topical. And I think subsequent to that, when Seymour Hirsch wrote his Substack on how it all kind of w- through this this thread or this chain of yeah. events had had pointed back to the U.S. Yeah. and uh, I believe it was the Navy uh, salvage dive team and and a covert operation uh, with respect to a Baltic Sea joint military exercise. What what's your take on all that and kind of yeah. where where do we stand with Nord Stream if if any yeah. relative to that that time yeah. frame? Yeah, sure. Um, so. Right there, there was the there was the Seymour Hirsch article first, um, and then it was not long after it was not long after that that then we started getting the first like really good reporting on what had actually happened and what the West was thinking, um, and right and it turns out that the the CIA and other Western intelligence agencies had picked up on this idea of the Ukrainians, um, you know, cons- considering this for you know for a long time in advance. They had actually warned allies about it. And then we started getting the details of now this public version that presumably is working its way through the Western press. We, the most of the new information we get is actually from you know countries quite very close to the, the geography, places like Germany, Sweden, um, and there it's, it seems like a lot of the stuff in the the if not all the stuff in the Seymour Hirsch article as being is being disproven by the information um, that that's that's coming out uh, in, in these reports um, now. And yeah, I remember when our company we also looked really hard at this when it happened, and and and, and uh, who who could who could have done it? Uh, and now it's there's still there's still so much debate about whether uh, a small team of these Ukrainian divers uh, could have actually done done this without 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 it being without having access to some more advanced technology or using certain submarines, etc. Um, and you know you you can argue it both both ways. But to but it, the, the from what I understand from the latest reports, it seems that they they there's 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 a certain amount of belief um, in this this Ukrainian dive team. It's still not impossible. I mean, a Ukrainian dive team could still be somebody else's false flag. It could, that could still be a Russian false flag. That could still be a, a, a U.S. false flag um, in theory, right? So we're, we're we still don't have a very clear sense. At the end of the day. Um, I don't think that this was very much in the Ukrainians' interests or the the West's interests. I tend to think that yeah, the Russians would have, you know, still gotten lots of revenue from the Nord Stream pipelines, and so you could argue that's that's why you wanted to blow it up. On the other hand, a cheap a cheaper energy market in Europe is actually good for the Ukrainians and good for the West because that that's what that's what will that that makes this whole war fatigue topic right. If Putin Putin's big calculus was that oh there's going to be so much war fatigue due to high energy bills in Europe that that would cause 
kind of fighting in the transatlantic relationships within NATO, et cetera, and there would be huge war fatigue in Europe and the Germans would stop supporting Ukraine, et cetera. And, and then that's how they could bring about an overall end of support to Ukraine. Uh, well, if, again, if the, if, the, if the Germans are getting more cheap gas via Nord Stream, that, that, that actually makes that hard, way, way harder to pull off. So initially it seemed more, just in, a, in terms of interest, it seemed more logical to me that Russia would want to blow up the pipeline just because I, I don't think expensive energy for Europe is good for the West or the Ukrainians. Um, but it, 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 the way it looks now, it looks like, it, it, again, it, a lot of this just depends on reporting and it's not really clear, but it looks like um, this, this, this group of Ukrainians um, you know, may have been responsible. Their goal being that they wanted to deny Russia all the revenue that it could have gotten from Nord Stream. I still have a tendency to think that it was the Iranians because, you know, I've got this whole theory that the Iranians would be able to get their stranded natural gas to Europe. I mean, it's going to take some daisy chaining on the pipelines to get there, but theoretically that could be done. And if anybody's core competency is blowing something up, it is the Iranians. They do that well. But I've got kind of my final question because we're bumping up against uh, uh, time here. And then I'll let Mark get a, a final question in, and then maybe we'll just close on what are we looking for next. But real quick, you know, we've heard reports of the mental health of Putin and is he sick? Is he deranged? What's going on there? Any thoughts playing armchair Sigmund Freud on Putin? And is this at play? Is this potentially truly an issue? I I tend to not think it is. Um, there's been some uh, really about yeah, I want to say about two years ago there was some really good reporting on the first actual actually good reporting on the state of Putin's health that was you you used testimony from doctors and some really good information that they uncovered and it, it appears that Putin did have uh, some pretty serious thyroid issues possibly a th- a straight up thyroid cancer but. Almost all signs are, are, are that that is in remission, um, and at least to me, his his there, there's there's no signs that his health is truly um, uh, an, an an issue that um, you know is is going to really be a you know be an issue in the in the near term. Of course, he is a he's a seventy year old Russian male. If you just look at the actuary tail, tables uh, and dem- demographics and know anything about Russian males born in his, in his birth year. He's he's long outlived Russian males who 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 learn who who, learned, who, li- who were born in his birth year. So demographically, it's going to be he's got some uphill battles, but he's getting access to such incredibly high um, high quality healthcare that I think that, that they'll continue to put a band aid on it. And I haven't really seen signs that he's unhealthy. Our, my last one really relates to something we all have. We at Big Digital Energy have skin in the game. We made some early year forecasts or predictions for 2023 chucks was at some point there is a trigger point for putin uh to go nuclear what are uh-huh. you hearing what are you hearing on the nuclear front and yeah. you know how how much is there to that yeah and and what's what's kind of the the risk yeah. reward yeah, for that yeah. for that yeah. old nuclear I, question. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is a question I look at all the time in my work. Um, ba- basically, I don't I don't think that the the Russians are seriously looking at nuclear at this time. Um, certain certainly not 
right with the battle lines where they are now um look using a nuclear weapon comes with all kinds of risk for russia and it and down backsides um costs for russia um and the the rewards are are potentially you know um are, are dubious so you know if they i there's a whole debate about whether they would use a nuke first on ukraine or first on the west uh and i think that the the First off, I think the first answer is that I don't. I think that they would, they would, they would do. They would want to threaten using a nuke before they just suddenly used one, right? They would want to really go through a whole process of engaging in in serious nuclear blackmail with the West, and they haven't started doing that at all yet. So the good, the good, the good news is that we would get a, a whole host of signs, like weeks, um, if not months in advance, when we would know that the Russians are starting to take this more seriously. For example, we would see them at least raise their nuclear threat level uh, higher than it currently is. Putin, on I, I think that the second the day after the invasion started over a year ago, he raised their nuclear threat level from like zero to one. Um, well, there, I think there's four more nuclear threat levels they would have to go before they, at least doctrinally, that means they would use a nuke. So um, that that's just kind of a formal sign that would su- suggest that we would have to see way more threatening maneuvers of their nuclear forces that's another thing that would like just blow up in the western um in in the western press um uh, i I think that they would also instead of using attack nuke for example in ukraine why not just uh, have a have a dirty bomb go off and blame the ukrainians or even cause an incident at the nuclear power plant in zaporizhia and blame it on the ukrainians right it's a way to engage in an actual radiological instance of nuclear blackmail without having to drop attack nuke, which is obviously can be tied back to Russia. Um, in terms of the downsides, yeah, a lot of it comes down to, 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 to China and the whole rest of the world saying, you know, you, you're, you're going completely, you know, out, outside the, the range of, you know, acceptable statecraft. Uh, moreover, if the, if the Russians are dropping attack nukes in Ukraine, that, that opens up a door for the Ukrainians to do all kinds of strikes inside of Russia. And for the for the West to say, well, the Russians have just blown the escalation doors off this war. We're we're not tied in, in what we what we do do or provide the Ukrainians. And so, if the if the Russians dropped one tack nuke in Ukraine, they would almost certainly have to drop a second and a third and a fourth. And then if they drop ten tack nukes in Ukraine, the whole question will become, well, why why aren't why, attacking Ukraine isn't a good way to is is not a good form of nuclear blackmail. We actually have to do nuclear blackmail against the West. And that, I mean, that risks a thermonuclear war between um, uh, the NATO and, and, and Russia. And I don't think Putin is suicidal in that way. So the good news is that I don't think it's, I don't, I really don't think it's going to be much, much of a topic. I think that if the, if the Russians really thought that a, um, a nuclear escalation ladder would end really well for them, they probably would have already done it. In fact, I think that the, the risk of it was a bit higher way back when when Putin first annexed those Ukrainian regions because the idea because the idea then would be oh the, I'm calling these places Russia therefore now I have a, a right to use nukes to defend Russia to defend my own territory well now we've been fighting in these places for over a year and a half and he still hasn't done it and if and if it goes for these parts of Ukraine well then the same thing goes for Crimea uh, and and Donbas just places that they took over earlier but it's all the same logic where these places aren't actually in recognizes Russia, not even China recognizes these places as, as, as Russia. So it would be very, um, it would be surprising to see Russia go, go nuclear 
over these places that it it it, it, it itself doesn't act like they're part of Russia. Trust me, I wanted to be wrong when I made that prediction. So, and he and he, and he did caveat it that way. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so maybe Matt will just close real quick, and I'll give you a big open-ended question to take wherever you want. But uh, kind of, what's next? Maybe what what are you looking out for? What do you think happens? What's next? Yeah. yeah. Great question. I mean, all I'm really looking forward to is this Ukrainian counteroffensive and how much more ground they can take. I think it's going to be really hard for them to take more ground um, just because the, the place that they need to take ground, again, is this this Zaporizhia region. Um, and again, we didn't, we didn't even t- talk about the dam, but I mean, it looks like the, the, the Russians almost certainly blew up the dam there. And the reason for that is that they want to move more... Th- move more of their forces to the key place, which is the Zaporizhia region. Um, And so with even more Russian forces there, it's going to be even harder for the Ukrainians to to take ground. Um, That being said, the Ukrainians just have to take, you know, they would love to retake all of the land bridge, but really they just have to retake several more miles so that they can effectively use their missiles and artillery to cut off the, cut off the so-called land bridge as a logistical corridor um, and then, and then they, and then they can settle in and the Russians are in the same place where their only strategic, um, been gain from the entire invasion being this, this corridor isn't, I mean, they still occupy a lot of it, but it's not really able to function as a, a logistical, uh, point for Russia. And then, then it's all going to shift back to the West. And so I think that the big topic in the second half of the year, Q3 and, and, and Q4 is what, it, what is the West saying about, um, their support for Ukraine. Um, do they, uh, do they basically said, yes, um, you know, uh, th- we, we gave the Ukrainians a lot of military support for this counteroffensive. Um, it was, it, it's, re- it's really hard to gain ground, but we can't stop supporting the Ukrainians. And, and in fact, we actually need to think about transitioning our support for Ukraine away from these like one-off, oh, here's, and this is how it works. We we it's done in the fiscal year. Um, the basically the the National Defense Authorization Act is a, is, is the mechanism through which a lot of the Ukraine support went through, and then a, another separate special package. But that's very different, for example, for U.S. for U.S. support military support for a country like Israel, where Congress passes a, a special ten year law that like allocates all of these this this these these dollars and equipment on a ten year basis. If the West starts thinking about their support for Ukraine in a way more like that, that that's that's a totally a game changer because that if they can lock in just for as an example, if towards the end of this year, let's say sometime in Q4 after the end of this year's fighting season, if the West says, okay, look, let's actually lock in a five-year military equipment support package to Ukraine, well, that that really changes Putin's calculus because it shows that he can't he can't just he he keeps thinking that he can just wade out the West and. Once this counteroffensive ends, then Western support is going to collapse, and then and so on and so forth. Um, and so it'll it'll it just for me the key question is do do we really start to see signs of that where the West says ah the, the Ukrainians can't make more ground past this counteroffensive, or do we see the opposite where the West says no yeah the Ukrainians didn't took it didn't take as much as we expected, but the Russians are, are still on their back foot, and all we have to do is just show Putin that he he can't he can't really get a strategic victory here in the long term. Matt, this has been great stuff. I really appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Outstanding. Thanks, Matt.